This is a conversation with Central Asia expert Colleen Wood on the history of colonialism in Central Asia. We discuss how Russia colonized Central Asia, the colonial economic and environmental legacies of Soviet rule, how Soviet rule sought to break traditional cultural connections to the land in Central Asia, and how internal colonialism in the face of autocratic rulers have continued in Central Asia, as well as citizens' attempts to resist these autocratic rulers through protests and social movements. It's an important conversation with all that's going on in Central Asia and Russia. For more conversations like this, you can go to our back catalog on the Arts of Travel podcast, and for print interviews, you can go to asiaarttours.com. My name is Colleen Wood. I am a PhD candidate at Columbia University, where I'm writing a dissertation about social movements and social media in Kazakhstan. How does your generation of scholars differ from perhaps uh, uh, generations past when it comes to Central Asia? I have realized that the older generation, I guess if you want to call them that, of, of scholars, I think um, not being digital natives and maybe not the, the formative time that they spent in the region was a time before, like where you had to go to an internet cafe if you wanted to be able to write anyone an email. Um, but around the time that I was first showing up in Central Asia is when um, telecommunications companies really took off. So like I've never known Central Asia without a smartphone. Um, so I, and I think that that really shapes my thinking about how politics works, where for people who are not in Central Asia at the moment, like where do you find out about what's going on? Um, so kind of have built a weird little network of, okay, I know which hashtags to check on Instagram and which uh, channels to check on Telegram to get this, a sense of what's going on um, on the ground. Um, but beyond social media, I think that language is a big shift that's happened recently. Um, Almost all of the early career scholars from the US I know who are doing really incredible stuff in Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan, all of them emphasize local language knowledge above Russian. Like a few friends even who are doing their doctoral dissertation work in Kazakhstan, like didn't know Russian before they went. They only knew Kazakh, only had trained in Kazakh and realized later that I mean, just for daily life, you maybe need to learn a little bit of Russian, but it's really like putting the titular local language first. Um, and you know, this is certainly not true of all senior scholars or journalists, especially anthropologists who have studied Central Asia, that they have incredible language skills. But I think that there's a trend that um, in the past it was okay um, to go in only knowing Russian um, and that it, that wasn't a major limitation of how you could study and understand this place. But in, in recent years, I think that, that there's been a real push to study the region on its own terms, not just an extension of Russia where you can get by with only Russian. Two scholars who uh, have been enormously helpful for me in thinking through imperialism, uh, Franz Fanon and Walter Rodney. So Rodney, for people who don't know, looked essentially at how Europe uh, once 
granting uh, African nations that were former colonies once uh, independence was granted or taken in the case of uh, rebellions, um, how they left those economies underdeveloped so they had uh, to be weak and they had to rely on their former colonial masters. I don't understand this relationship when it comes to Central Asia, and I'm hopeful that you could spell out a little bit uh, of this for our listeners. Could you discuss how the USSR structured the economies of these nations when they ruled? And when independence was granted, was it by design that Central Asia would still have to rely on Russia's economy as sort of a vassal or... um, in, in a subservient position. So just as Rodney looked at Africa, could you help us better understand uh, the economic colonialism of the USSR over Central Asia and post-USSR, what has the relationship been like between the economies of Central Asia and the now Russian Federation? Um, so the Soviet colonial project was one of both resource extraction and this kind of purported sociocultural development of the nations that were in the periphery. So I think Moscow saw Central Asian communities as backwards. They're like, these people don't have a nation. If they don't have nationalism, they can't continue on the kind of process towards socialism. Um, So the construction of nations was a conscious step in getting the whole Soviet Union on the path towards like true socialist utopia. Um, but both of these ended up being the both the resource extraction and this kind of development of nations were, yeah, like um, have, have had really lasting legacies. So the resource extraction in Central Asia is not um, evenly distributed. And I don't think that the, it, this was an intentional drawing the maps to divide and rule, intentional drawing the maps to give one of the republics more goods than others. Um, But the resource extraction looked like in the Caspian Sea, this is um, oil and gas. Um, There's massive gold deposits in Kyrgyzstan. It was building dams in Tajikistan to build, to develop hydropower. Um, It was uranium mining in in Kazakhstan. So there's that, that kind of natural resource extraction um, in those countries, and then a huge cotton market in Uzbekistan and in southern Kyrgyzstan, um, which largely depended on the labor of people who had not consented to it, um, child labor, bringing kids out of school, um, and shipping them to different fields to pick cotton. Um, and both, both types of the kind of crop extraction, as well as the natural resource extraction, those legacies have definitely continued. But um, one scholar... Um, Eric McGlinchey is a professor at George Mason. He kind of theorized that the differ, different levels of capital resources and natural resources available to Central Asian states is a big explainer for where they developed politically. Um, so Kazakhstan is arguably the wealthiest of the five post-Soviet stands. It has massive oil and gas deposits. It's been able to kind of leverage that to build something that looks like a middle class. Um, Because it has all of this money, it's able to basically pay people off, um, but with um, comfort, with stability um, to encourage them not to protest or not to fight back. Whereas Uzbekistan has 
has resources, but um, not enough to kind of buy people's complicitness. Um, but they do have enough to pay for a really aggressive police state. And so this kind of explains Uzbekistan as a much more um, violent autocratic space. And Kyrgyzstan um, really did not inherit a ton in the way of natural resources. It's one of the poorest countries, not only in Central Asia, but also in the world. And McGlinchey kind of argues that, yes, this has been awful for economic development. It was not really the intention of Russia to, to leave Kyrgyzstan poor, but without enough money for a really strong police force, um, there hasn't then been that violent crackdown on mass movements. So this kind of explains why Kyrgyzstan has had these multiple revolutions in the last um, 30 years. Yeah, so the I guess how this links into kind of the intentionality of um, Soviet leaders trying to structure these economies and these political institutions to keep them dependent on Russia. I think there's a difference between the Soviet colonial setup and the French Soviet setup or colonial setup in that I think the French saw the dominoes collapsing earlier. So like if they wanted then to kind of set it up so that the African economies were underdeveloped, I think that Moscow was quite surprised about the sudden end of the Soviet Union. I mean, yes, it had been after years of perestroika and glasnost, but the actual collapse of it, I think was kind of a shock. Um, so I don't know that it's been necessarily like an intentional thing to keep Central Asian economies reliant on the Russian Federation, but they certainly have. Um, for example, Russia or um, remittances sent back from labor migrants in Russia make up some 30% of both Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan's GDP. Um, millions of people from Uzbekistan, from Tajikistan, from Kyrgyzstan are living and working in Russia. Um, that this, I think in Kyrgyzstan, it's something like one sixth of the population is, is working in Russia. This is a massive, massive reliance um, that the Russian Federation has definitely leveraged um, to kind of keep and perpetuate political influence there. Um, so for example, the creation of the Eurasian Economic Union um, back in 2016. This was basically a way like Russia was able to pressure Kyrgyzstan to join this, which meant kind of free movement of, of goods across borders. It kind of locks Kyrgyzstan into the Russian market. But the benefit for Kyrgyzstan was that the other neighboring countries that send tons of labor migrants to Russia were not members of this. Um, but being a member meant that Kyrgyz citizens kind of skip the line of some of the bureaucratic processes required for labor migrants to have like an official permit to be able to work in Russia. So through this like need of like recognizing the how much of Kyrgyzstan's economy depends on labor migration, they're kind of stuck um, and not really able to reject the, the invitation to join this economic union. Um, I guess one last, perpetuating legacy of, kind of how the Soviet Union ruled in Central Asia um, would be the way that energy infrastructure was developed. Um, so even though there were the 15 separate republics that people had internal passports, like it, 
you you were a member of that republic, but it was much easier to travel across borders. The kind of internal borders were existed, but were not. It wasn't the same as like today trying to travel between Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan and going through an actual passport check. Um, and so I think that the development of energy infrastructure mirrored that, that these borders are politically real, socially real, but not um, going, each republic didn't need to have their own um, energy grid or electric grid. Um, so in taking advantage of the different, the, the topological setup of Central Asia, um, is that by putting dams um, around in, in Kazakhstan and in Tajikistan, they basically were then uh, like those dams are still in place. The the electric grid is still in place, but the upstream states are dependent on the the factories that are actually producing the energy are in the downstream countries. Um, but so they basically they're they're trading water for electricity all the time, um, and this creates some pretty spiky tensions between especially Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, and Tajikistan around like, hey, you're not giving us enough water this year. We're going to basically cause rolling blackouts in your country for the next few weeks, which contributes to political unrest, which um, can cause big problems. So I think that there's like an infrastructural legacy on top of the kind of political and economic extractions that were happening. Uh, the other revolutionary scholar who I love is is Franz Fanon, and um, what I loved about Fanon is in looking at Africa, he said we need to throw off our colonial masters, and then we need to throw off the yoke of neo-colonialists. So these would be a domestic elite, typically who were once aligned with the uh, formal imper former imperial powers. Uh, when those imperial powers left, they would give the keys to the car to this domestic elite who would then install a rule based on the same autocratic principles of violence and uh, uh, autocracy um, as the uh, previous uh, imperialists. Central Asia, I think, probably suffers from a lot of racism uh, and Orientalism on the part of uh, Westerners um, when looking at these spaces and seeing that so many are autocratic and assuming it's something cultural or it's something uh, just about the people there. Could you discuss a bit about, um, for Central Asia, why do we see so many autocratic spaces, and were there individuals like a Fanon who both wanted to throw off Russian rule, but also sought to throw off the rule of the local elites that Russia empowered when it left these spaces as a former uh, imperialist um, controller of Central Asia? Yeah, so in terms of kind of how do we account for the kind of bait and switch from autocratic Soviet Union to contemporary autocratic rulers, I think it's important to note that like the 15 republics within the Soviet Union didn't inherit the same the governance capacity or the same social environment um, that like, for example, the Baltics wanted out. They were the first states to declare both sovereignty and independence. Um, there's huge surge of, of nationalist protests of, okay, we are Lithuanian, we are Estonian, we're Latvian, like get out colonizer. Um, and I think that that consciousness was much more deeply um, embedded in, in the Baltics than in Central Asia, which were the last states to leave the, the Soviet Union, the last ones to declare independence. And some even say like that basically Kazakhstan was kicked out of the Soviet Union, that there's 
the map of the last day of the Soviet Union is just a map of Kazakhstan. Um, and so it's finally like, all right, it's over. Um, time, time to figure out how to do independent rule. Um, but it, although there, like the the people who were in charge of the five the five stands um, did just continue on ruling, although like propped up with elections immediately after independence. Um, that there, like it, it really did take some time for full consolidation of these of autocratic rules. So, for example, in, in Kazakhstan, it wasn't until two thousand and seven that Nursultan Nazarbayev like fully consolidated um, his, his cult of personality. Like, sure, there were there were definitely lots of fraudulent practices around elections. He dissolved parliament several times when it tried to challenge him. He pressured potential opposition candidates to leave the country. Um, but in, in 2007, it was when an amendment to the constitution removed the provision that the president could only run for a, a limited number of five-year terms. The president couldn't be a member of a political party. Um, and so getting rid of those provisions paved the way for a much more um, individualistic rule as opposed to kind of broad um, and run by an authoritarian elite. Um, and yeah, I, I certainly think it's unfair to say that any like these cultures support autocracy, these country, these cultures want autocracy. Um, I think that that's definitely not the case, but that there's the, the people who made it, who were in charge in the last years of the Soviet Union, figured out how to rebrand themselves, how to distance themselves from Soviet talking points, to relabel themselves as nationalists who just wanted to advance the Kyrgyz, Uzbek, or Kazakh cause. Um, and basically then has been a kind of magical chairs for the or, uh, musical chairs for the last 30 years of, of people who are kind of switching around their position, leaving government and re-entering under a new party or under um, a new platform that a lot of the actors maintain the same. Um, and when the rules of the game are set up to benefit those people that are already in charge, it, it just makes it really complicated for new voices to push their way in and be competing in elections, to be competing um, for political power. Um, to the other question you had about, is, is there a kind of figure within Central Asia who's urging people to fight up, fight back? Um, there's, I'll, I'll speak to the, the Kazakh case that there's um, the narrative of a political party and liberation movement founded in the 19 teens um, called the Alash party remains really powerful in Kazakhstan. Um, so after the 1905 revolution in Russia, these Kazakh elites got together and they founded this party as a way to advocate for basically Russian Russians to leave Kazakh lands. Um, they founded the Alash Orda, is like they declared independence basically from the Russian Empire in 1918. But as the civil war between Bolsheviks and White Army is going on, uh, the Alash had backed the White Army, and when the Bolsheviks won out, um, this led to the defeat of the Alash Orda and the establishment of a of a Soviet socialist republic in Kazakhstan. Um, or in what is now Kazakhstan. At the time, actually, it was called the Kyrgyz SSR. Um, 
and there was then a name name switch but um yeah and so most of the Kazakh elite then were either sent to gulags or were shot because of their so-called nationalist ideas um but and so I think that the symbolism of this group went away for, for several decades and was really revived with independence um, and even revived by Nursultan Nazarbayev in the kind of presidential museum in Astana. There's a whole floor dedicated to the Alash party and, and photographs of some of the members of it. But what's ironic is that also opposition groups are, are drawing on these symbols as well. Um, so one of the main founders and main members of the Alash party was um, Mirzakup Dulatov, who in 1909 published a book of poems called Oyan Kazakh, which means like, wake up Kazakhs. Um, and so this book of poems was written in Kazakh, was spread around, um, and, and that phrase Oyan Kazakh became the slogan of the Alash party in 1917. And fast forward a century later, and in 2019, as Nazarbayev is announcing that he's stepping down, that he's choosing a successor. Uh, a new civic movement is announced and starts organizing these like big actions, kind of performance art style protests, and they name themselves Oyan Kazakhstan. Um, so kind of drawing on, directly on Alash, directly on Dvlatov um, to, I think, yeah, that there's power in, in the symbols of the Alash, even though they were political elites, even though like there's questionable stuff that happened in history of how they kind of worked with within the Russian Empire, um, as Kazakhs who wanted to speak Kazakh to rule their own space and their own political territory, um, that has remained really inspirational for people um, even today. Um, so I think that would be one example of a kind of historical figure that is being repurposed or the the, the history of, of Dulatov is being um, used for opposition, like civic movements today. The Soviet Union, uh, as scholars like Bathsheba Demuth have noted, sought to transform any ideology that didn't see nature as something to be used for production, um, turn these individuals, so indigenous uh, groups in Siberia is where she studies in her book, Floating Coast, sought to turn these into sort of uh, the Soviet man, turn these ideologies into something that saw nature as something to be used uh, for production, for use, to dispel any notions of spirituality or deeper uh, connections to nature that were not economic. Could you talk about this transformation um, within Central Asia? And for young people, um, is there a movement or growing movements to rediscover a nomadic culture or uh, uh, indigenous understanding of nature that was lost when these spaces were colonized by the Soviet Union? Yeah, so I think it is telling that the Shiva Demuth studies Siberian territories that I've, at least in Russian, have only ever heard the word indigenous applied to some of the autonomous republics in Siberia. So thinking of the Sakha people, Yakutia, thinking of um, Tuvin Republic on the border um, near Kazakhstan within Russia. Um, so I, I, I've never heard the word in Russian for indigenous applied 
to Central Asia or like by Central Asians. Um, however, I, I have seen that there has been a resurgence or I guess not a resurgence because it's not something coming back, but a framing of political identity and political history in terms of colonization and a need for decolonization, um, more so in Kazakhstan than in neighboring countries. Um, and I think like that even, even across the region though, we see this kind of attempt to return if not to nomadic culture, but um, distancing these communities from Russian rule through efforts to rename cities, um, efforts to, yeah, like renaming things back to whatever they were, but pre-Russian imperial even, so pre-Soviet, um, but like how they were named before the Russian empire took over this territory. Um, in terms of efforts to go back to nomadic culture, go back to these cultural connections to the land, I think the a first step is trying to just understand what that nomadic culture actually looked like and the processes through which it was destroyed by Soviet elites. So it's only only in recent years in Kazakhstan, I think that there's been an effort to raise consciousness about the 1930s era famine um, in, in Kazakhstan, that's Ashar Shaluk, that this was devastating. By a proportion of the population, more Kazakhs died because of the famine than Ukrainians during the Holodomor. Um, similar to the kind of impetus for the, the Holodomor in Ukraine is like collectivization was yes, like one effort to build this state-driven economy, but really it was about breaking these people's relationship with the land um, and relationship with each other. And so for Kazakh, for Kazakhs, that looked like breaking nomadic practices. If people are moving around all the time, it's really hard for central authorities to be able to count them, to be able to know where they are, what they're doing, who they're talking to. Um, so it was a way of establishing order and control over this population. Um, and so Sarah Cameron is a historian and, and her research was kind of the first to draw on both Russian and Kazakh language archives to study the both ecological and political origins of the, of the famine in Kazakhstan. And importantly, her, her book was translated into Kazakh and has really sparked an interest in Kazakhstan on this time period because it really wasn't discussed in the latter half of the Soviet Union. Um, and I think in the early nineties maybe was used as evidence of, ah, the Soviets were evil, look what they did. But there was, was I don't think that there has been a super deep understanding of how that famine worked and what the consequences for Kazakh um, nomadic herding practices were. So I don't know that there's a huge rush to get back to that on a like mass societal level. Um, there definitely are herders and farmers that take the take their animals to Jailau is the like higher higher up in the mountains um, in the summertime and then they bring them back down. Um, but I don't know that your average citizen in Almaty is is trying to do that. Um, however, I think that maybe the average citizen in Almaty is taking part in or looking at art. So I think there's been a really incredible, I mean, Kazakhstan, I think has always had really incredible um, artistic communities. But in recent years, there's been art that really is specifically trying to start a conversation around Kazakhstan's post-colonial reality. Um, so, and both from a perspective of like, what are the social dynamics and the social relations that were broken 
um, during colonialism, but also the, the environmental degradation and extraction. So two, two people come to mind. The first is um, Pasha Koss is a graffiti artist who's done some really cool graffiti work, huge murals targeting environmental degradation, like especially around the semi um nuclear testing site and this area in Northeastern Kazakhstan, the people who live there continue to have just awful, awful health problems as a direct result of nuclear testing at a massive scale in the Soviet era. Um, the other is Saleh Sulemyanova. She um, is an incredible artist who does all kinds of mixed media stuff, but one of her recent projects was repurposing plastic bags um, in a way to depict women in traditional dress, to depict landscapes, to depict um, people suffering in car logs. So the, the biggest gulag in, in Kazakhstan. Um, and in interviews, she's talked about the rationale to use plastic bags, both like that plastic takes hundreds and hundreds of years to decompose. Um, it doesn't just poof, it's gone, cease to exist when you throw it away. And so for her, this is both representative of like memories of colonial violence uh, against Kazakhs, um, but also the violence done to land and what happens when you have huge landfills filled with plastic um, and things that are not natural. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of where I would see the conversation in Kazakhstan starting around um, how, how do we understand our independence in relation to the colonial experience. And I, yeah, I think that it's tied to a resurgence in interest in Kazakh language, um, even among urban elites. Uh, the question though is whether this kind of frame, framing of it as decolonization will spread or will, will kind of gain traction in the neighboring states. I haven't seen it as much. Um, in, in Kyrgyzstan or in Uzbekistan, for example. Just on Twitter, which which is not very academic, you you are seeing a lot of anecdotal reporting about the tension in uh, places like Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, other spaces where Russians uh, fleeing Putin, the consequences of Putin's war on Ukraine uh, are now heading, and that this is exacerbating uh, racial tensions or linguistic tensions uh, within the region. Um, could you talk a little bit about, per your understanding, what was whiteness uh, during the period of uh, Soviet rule over the Central Asian nations? And what happens now when the former colonizer flees for the safety of the spaces it once colonized? My research background is not specifically on these types of, on whiteness as an identity, but um, I think one thing that could help explain it, it was the Soviet policy of coronization, colonization, um, which was the idea that within each of the republics, there should be kind of the people of that ethnicity should be the ones to be leading the economy, leading industry, leading politics. Um, but in Central Asia, it often worked out that there were just like um, disproportionately more Russians who were running the show in Central Asia compared to other peripheries um, of, of the Soviet Union. Even to the point where in, in um, Kazakhstan, there was an effort to appoint an ethnic Russian to a super high political post. And this led to mass protests. Um, and eventually the Soviets backed off and like, okay, 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 you can have um, a, a Kazakh in charge. Um, that's, there's definitely these kind of 
a sense of ethno supremacy within during during the Soviet time, but it was often kind of masked. Um, that there's a scholar who had a really great uh, metaphor of the Soviet Union as a, like a communal apartment, where the in theory the goal was that every nation um, got to have its own room, that it got to decorate according to its national traditions, that it got to put whatever it wanted into it. Um, but like poor Russia didn't get its own room. But then actually it's just because the whole apartment <laughs> belonged to Russia. Um, so I think even if there is this kind of, oh, like after independence, Russians weren't welcome. Like in Central Asia, I think that there was still a sense of this like ethnic hierarchy um, that, that was having consequences for, for social dynamics and for politics. Um, and I think, fast forwarding to today and in recent years, you see like in speeches from MPs in Russia that, you know, things like, ah, oh, Kazakhstan was never a real nation. Kazakhstan was never sovereign. Um, these attempts to delegitimize this state, um, I think are really rooted in a sense of, of ethnic supremacy. Um, but then how, how do those dynamics shift as tens of thousands of Russians are fleeing. Yeah, I think you put it well, the fleeing the consequences of Putin's war, maybe less than fleeing Putin um, is, yeah, so one first I'll kind of caveat is that I think it's tough to get a sense of like who exactly is coming to Central Asia from Russia. The data shows mass numbers of Russian citizens showing up and registering, but, um, you know, in 2020 alone, some 60,000 plus Tajiks, 12,000 Kyrgyz, 25,000 Uzbeks got Russian passports. They acquired citizenship. So part of me is wondering how many of these returnees or like Russians that are showing up um, are just Russian citizens who actually were Tajiks born in Tajikistan who just got a passport to make it easier to work. Um, but yes, I, I have also seen a lot of buzz on social media, on, on Instagram, on TikTok, on Twitter, all of these spaces, um, both of Russians who have now showed up in Central Asian cities and are making asses of themselves by joking about local language, local food, um, but also locals who are frustrated and concerned with what's going on. Um, I think, that even like friends from Russia who like are quite liberal, are up to speed on political questions, they really persist in using the kind of colonial names for cities and these countries. For example, they say Kyrgyzia instead of Kyrgyzstan, they say Almaty instead of Almaty. Like, and the names of these places were changed 30 plus years ago. Um, and so I think that this expectation of, ah, like the proper Russian way to say this is, Kyrgyzia, like, okay, but that's not like at all how these how these places want to be called. Um, that, yeah, there's definitely tension. Um, and I think that it certainly will open up some, there's an irony in the Russian state's aggressive militarization of migrants and the way that migrants from Central Asia are treated in Russia. Um, the assumption that they're there illegally, that they don't have proper paperwork. And now you have tens of thousands of Russians who like, if they don't register properly, only have 30 or 60 days in the country, they shouldn't be working. And 
probably that it's very quickly going to become this mass population of people who are kind of illegally um, staying in Central Asia. So uh, an inverse, um, but the power dynamics of local bureaucrats, of local politicians is such that I, I think that they're kind of constrained in what they can do about that. Um, I think one other aspect is that like ethnic identity is not as strong as like civic identity here. So like, especially in Kazakhstan, like there's a bigger population of ethnic Russians who have been living there for decades and who grew up, who were born in Kazakhstan, grew up in Kazakhstan, maybe even learned to speak some Kazakh. Um, that I think that there's a fear of like, okay, these Russians from Russia are coming and like, does that put a target on my back? Am I going to be like assumed to be foreign? Um, but I've, I've seen, yeah, in social media posts that kind of like, hold on guys, okay, not all Russians are acting like this. Um, that there's, I think, a desire to be protecting kind of social harmony, protecting this idea of these places are multicultural, multi-ethnic societies and have made that work um, in, in both like top-down institutionalized ways and bottom-up like relational developments or like, like conscious relationship building um, within communities and across communities that I like, I don't, I don't know that I, like, I don't expect violence um, between like ethnic violence around this kind of mass migration of Russians who are fleeing Putin's war. Um, but I think that it does create an opportunity to have these bigger conversations about the power dynamics between Central Asian states and Russia, the power dynamics of the like migration regime and my, my, the rules around migration um, that I, I hope that as it, it opens an opportunity for some sort of development in the diplomatic relations between Central Asian states and Russia. Basically, what I want to ask you about how Central Asian governments have reacted is it's this incredibly bizarre tightrope, tight you know, to a non-expert such as myself of we're not going to support the war. We're going to allow for protests in some spaces. I, um, I think there's protests in Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan this weekend. Um, but at the same time, we're autocratic and we, we faced numerous protests throughout the 2020s of our own rule. So I, I do not understand this tension at all of we'll allow criticism and we're of Russia and, you know, speak in this language about it being this bully. But we're not <laughs> we're hopefully we're not going to have this boomerang back on us. So that tightrope, I don't understand that. I'm wondering if you could shine a bit of light on that tension. Yeah, so I think that yeah so there have been i've seen protests in kazakhstan and in kyrgyzstan i haven't seen anything in turkmenistan uzbekistan or tajikistan maybe they've been happening on a super small scale in uzbekistan or tajikistan but i, I haven't seen anything um so even like between kazakhstan and kyrgyzstan there's different approaches to allowing or not allowing protests so kazakhstan did have a, a huge pro-Ukraine rally on March 6th. I think that there's another one scheduled for tomorrow that the um, Russian collective, the, the feminist anti-war collective is organizing a countrywide strike and protest tomorrow that I think then the kind of transnational network of activists, especially feminist activists is trying to replicate that. Um, 
in Kazakhstan, but Kyrgyzstan has um, actually cracked down pretty hard on protests that Bishkek authorities have banned public demonstrations in all of the key locations in the city um, saying, okay, if you want to have a protest or a rally until April 22nd, you have to do it in this one tiny park that is really far from the center and that is covered with trees so no one can see you. Um, and they've been arresting people who have been trying to protest in front of the Russian embassy, but only the ones who are in front of the Russian embassy with anti-Russian or, or critical messages. They're not arresting the people who are showing up in front of the Russian embassy with pro-Russian messaging. So I think what this tells us is that this really isn't about a fear that these protests might scale up and might unleash some sort of anti-power energy against their own governments. I think that it's really wanting to maintain an air of neutrality in balancing relations with Russia. So Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan are the only two of the five that have straight up come out and made, like leaders have made critical comments um, against the war. Um, both Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan have sent humanitarian aid to Ukraine. Um, but Kyrgyzstan is, I think, it, it arrested, or it called, it, there was one independent news outlet that reported on its Telegram channel that Kyrgyzstan behind the authorities had behind the scenes agreed to support the war. Um, and uh, a Kyrgyzstani court then decided that this news outlet was an extremist organization. The current director of the outlet is in jail right now. So they don't want, authorities don't want any news to get out if there is some sort of pro-war or pro-Russian sentiment within the government. Um, but they also then don't want Russia to see if there's any sort of anti-Russian sentiment in Kyrgyzstan. Um, so I think that that's where, like the justification of blocking dissent against the war in Ukraine, um, not because they fear their own position, but um, more out of the concern of, of what this does to relations with Russia. We've mentioned that in a lot of these nations, there is a hunger for change, and that's been demonstrated in at times, uh, very risky protests, large-scale social movements. Uh, feminists uh, have done phenomenal work through the arts in trying to address issues of domestic violence. Could you talk a bit about um, if you see Central Asia heading in a direction of change for the better, or do you expect more of the same in our near-term future? as well as where can people can can read more of your work if they liked our conversation today. I guess the first part of the question, you can find my work. My website is colleenwood.rocks. Um, and that kind of links up both my academic research and also bylines for places even beyond the diplomat. Um, and I also tweet my handle as colleenwood underdash or underscore. Um, so both like, nonsense memes about Central Asian politics, but also linking to other really incredible reporting and analysis done by people from the region, people who've spent decades and decades um, writing and paying attention to this space. Um, and I think within the community of Central Asia experts, I kind of am on the spectrum, I lean way more towards optimists for better or for worse. Um, I'm forever optimistic about even in, even, even like, 
globally as democracy is on decline, so-called democratic leaders are hacking away at people's rights to public assembly, to speech. Um, and then in places like Central Asia, where this is a 30 year process um, of kind of trying to restrict people's ability to get together, to talk and to speak out. Um, you can see in all of these contexts, super kind of wily and creative ways to get around those restrictions. Um, you see really incredible and inspiring protest art um, that I don't know exactly like what the opening up of these democratic spaces looks like, um, but I really have seen creative and persistent organizing um, in, in the big cities in Central Asia, both at the kind of how do we imagine a new political system, but also how do we educate citizens who, have, who maybe haven't had access to news either in their own language or in Russian. Um, so seeing a kind of ecosystem of Instagram accounts where the goal is like real journalism, like maybe they don't have money for a full newsroom, but they're able to be putting out really interesting writing and analysis um, in Uzbek, in Kazakh, in Kyrgyz, as, as a way to educate people to hopefully build up the kind of infrastructure for a movement long-term. So I'm optimistic. Maybe in the, the short term, I keep getting proven wrong that awful, awful things are happening. But um, I'm really hopeful that the, the people that I've been talking to for my research and for my public writing, that they're gonna make some big changes.